Okay, so, Diane. Okay. Well, I was trained in a discipline, economics, in which the dominant paradigm, neoclassical economics, asserts that the key issue is efficiency, not equality. But I ended my career in the... I speak louder. I ended my career in the Department of Sociology, I mean, precisely because what Anthony said, sociology is a more pluralist discipline than economics. But there are divisions in economics. Although the neoclassical paradigm is dominant, it's not the only one. And indeed, the uh, commission that Anthony referred to approvingly in terms of developing new indicators for um, uh, beyond GDP, Sen uh, Stieglitz are economists, albeit not neoclassical economists. So I'm going to say a little bit more about this focus on efficiency, not equality, and what it means, and then how that's been challenged and disrupted by other economists. And I want to talk particularly um, about uh, feminist economics and the contribution that's made to thinking about uh, many of these issues we've been discussing. And then if there's time, I might say a little bit about some of the issues I'm trying to grapple with at the moment by looking at the work of uh, Piketty, who's uh, written this best-selling mm-hmm. book, uh, Capital in the 21st Century, uh, on equality, which interestingly engages, when it's talking about historical record, engages with novels as a way of understanding issues like wealth and inheritance in 19th century uh, Britain and France unlike any other book that any economist has ever written about inequality. Maybe this is one reason it became a bestseller. So, in, in, in the dominant approach in economics, what we conventionally call neoclassical economic theory, the distribution of assets and the structure of property rights is taken as given, as well as individual preferences and technology and the existence of markets. And if markets are, quote, perfect, unfettered market exchange results in an efficient outcome. Efficient in the sense that nobody can be made better off without somebody else being made worse off. And this is described as an optimal situation. And those of you from the humanities can see straight away the persuasive nature of this language. And indeed, there is work in, in economics now on the rhetoric of economics because nobody is going to advocate inefficiency and waste. So if you say something is efficient, you're commanding approval for it. And nobody wants to be in a suboptimal situation, and optimal is the best. So it is a persuasive language that's used um, uh, to describe this outcome of the, the perfect market. It's also an approach in which Better off, worse off. We had quite a lot of discussion yesterday about better off and worse off and uh, with respect to what. And the key thing about neoclassical economics, it doesn't allow interpersonal comparisons. You are the only judgment of whether you're better off or worse off. And if the rich person says they're uh, better off because they are uh, worse off because they have one year less, well, they're the only judge of that. So interpersonal comparisons are not allowed. It's purely subjective judgments by the individuals concerned. So it is a, a utilitarian perspective in terms of judgments of better off or worse off. 
it, it, in, in terms of wages and, uh, and um, profits or any other return to assets, there's a, a theory, the theory is that the, the wages are determined by the marginal productivity of labor and profits by the marginal productivity of capital. And although the marginal productivity of labor is not your marginal productivity, uh, your productivity, it's the productivity that the enterprise would secure if it added another worker. And although the profitability, the, the, the uh, marginal productivity of capital is not your productivity as an entrepreneur, but rather the extra output you would get in the enterprise if you added one more unit of capital, whatever we think that might be. Nevertheless, if there's an easy elision that's often made, particularly in the popularizations of this theory, between marginal productivity and your productivity. And therefore, it's easy to slip into the idea wages are what you deserve because it's what your productivity is. And if you get very high wages, well, that's because you're extremely productive. And if there's a very big return to your assets, that's because you have used your assets in a very productive way. So it's an easy uh, slippage into a perception that... um, uh, this explains that this provides a justification for inequalities, although strictly interpreted, the theory doesn't provide that, but it's very easy to slip into that assumption. In fact, the question of what is a just distribution of income and wealth, which we grappled with and particularly grappled with yesterday, I think, is considered a question for other disciplines. And in fact, it's regarded as a benefit of neoclassical economics that it will sidestep this question. That's one for the philosophers, that's one for the sociologists, maybe it's one for the lawyers, but it's not one for the economists. And um, that means that neoclassical economic theory is suspicious of attempts to change the distribution of wealth and income in case they jeopardize efficiency. So, um, taxes, for instance, you might think of taxes as a, a immediate, uh, immediately as an instrument for modifying the distribution of wealth or income. But neoclassical economic theory is very concerned about taxes distorting incentives, distorting incentives to work, distorting incentives to invest, and therefore jeopardizing efficiency. And the only tax instrument which doesn't introduce these so-called distortions. You see, again, the, the, the rather um, loaded use of language, because distortions don't sound very good, do they, um, is a poll tax. So a poll tax is fine because that doesn't uh, distort anybody's uh, incentives, doesn't impact on their behaviour. But, of course, that is the tax which everybody else thinks is the most uh, you know, unjust, and that's the one that was likely to provoke uh, riots in a way that other taxes don't. Of course, neoclassical economists do admit that markets aren't perfect, and um, maybe there's some justification for government action to offset these imperfections. But again, they're very cautious about this because they argue that uh, government intervention to try and uh, change income distributions or offset distortions in markets Um, runs the risk of introducing new distortions and imperfections of its own. Um, And it's a a, a theoretical framework, again, in which instruments that are often seen uh, outside this framework as being useful for uh, addressing inequality, like minimum wage laws, 
uh, critiqued on the grounds actually this won't benefit the poor because it will mean there are fewer jobs for them. Everybody who does economics 101, there's what economics of the labor market, why the minimum wage will not uh, help the poor. <laughs> However, of course, when you look at the evidence around the world, the minimum wage is often been a very, very important uh, instrument in reducing inequality. But um, economics is not completely monolithic, um, although its most economics departments are not that hospitable in the UK and the USA to uh, economists of different persuasions, heterodox economists. Uh, of which there are many varieties, Marxist, Keynesian, Kaletskian, uh, um, Archer said human development uh, type economists, um, uh, uh, and feminist economists. Um, but one thing, uh, before I talk a bit about feminist economics, one thing that these heterodox approaches to economics put on agendas is A, a sort of a broader vision of equality of what, inequality of what. So we talked about yesterday, we talked a bit about Marcia sense capabilities approach, uh, but also they put on the agenda the functional distribution of income, the distribution of income not between persons or households, but the distribution of income between labour and capital. Uh, and talk about the way in which the distribution of income between labour and capital uh, affects the trajectory of economies in terms of um, uh, of growth, of full employment, etc. And that's something that functional distribution of income isn't something that neoclassical economics looks at. It's not measured by things like the Gini coefficient or these ratios we looked at earlier. It's measured in the aggregate for, for a country. What's the share of income going, quote, to labour? What's the share of income going to capital? There are complexities about how you make that division when a lot of people are self-employed or, or small landowners, for instance. But um, it is a different way of looking at inequality and the distribution of income, which is actually making a comeback over the last few years. And a lot of the empirical work recently um, on uh, income and um, inequality hasn't just looked at the distribution between persons or households, but it's looked at this functional distribution and has found that the share going to capital has been increasing and the share going to labour has been decreasing. So feminist economics is one of this uh, suite of uh, heterodox approaches, I think. And... Um, it's, it's notable for rejecting that rational economic man that's central to neoclassical economics. We talked a lot yesterday about the, the, uh, the, the nature of the, um, these individuals that we're talking about, and um, feminist economics has a much more complex view of these individuals, allowing for things like adaptive preferences, endogenous preferences, altruism, as indeed in many other heterodox approaches, behavioural economics, for instance, a lot more complex suite of motivations. But I think feminist economics tends to go a bit beyond that in also postulating a much more decentered self with multiple and shifting identities and therefore more open to the point that Devaki raised about how can we, in effect, change people um, uh, and uh, so it's a much more fluid understanding of what these um, uh, economic actors are. 
and it rejects the explanation given by neoclassical economics that what we see in labour markets and in households is not gender inequality but gender difference. Uh, it rejects the theories that won Gary Becker, the Nobel Prize for Economics, which explain the gender division of labour as the outcome of differences in male and female preferences and aptitudes and in which discrimination cannot persist in competitive markets because it would reduce profits. Well, there are lots of arguments to show how discrimination can actually, of various kinds, not just gender, race, other kinds of discrimination can increase profits. Uh, If you have a less restrictive understanding of how markets and competition and profit-making works. Feminist economics, therefore, does promote this multi-layered approach to analysing inequality, which has surfaced in various of our discussions. Um, uh, In particular, though, it it emphasises that we mustn't elide the difference between households and individuals. Most of the measurement of the personal income inequality is actually based on on households. I was very pleased to know there's progress in India getting beyond this, but if you go to these big data sets in the the World Bank or uh, if you look at all the big international reports of conventional measures and grouping households into lowest decile up to richest decile, and of course that means it's not possible to talk about inequalities within households. You can only talk about inequalities between households. Um, uh, so I think that's very distinctive about feminist economics, and though it approach it, it includes all these other, the social groups, the countries, the functional distribution, but within all of those it says we have to look within those other groupings, within those other categories, at gender differences. Um, I think I'll talk now a bit about, um, when we talked about inequality of what, about a particular contribution the feminist economics has made in terms of uh, inequality in time use, and particularly inequality in responsibilities to use your time in unpaid work related to the care of families and communities. Some of that is direct interpersonal care. Others of it, in countries where you can't switch on the electricity or you can't turn on the tap, particularly in poor rural areas, is concerned with um, gathering water and fuel and so forth. All of it, all of, or growing food for your family. So all of this unpaid work is an important access for, uh, for thinking about inequality um, uh, as well as inequality in money. The kind of uh, the way I look at this is, in, I think this in terms of the three R's of unpaid work. The first R is is recognised, recognised in a specific sense of making visible this work to um, uh, economists and economic policy makers, because there are no regular statistics on this. Um, it's not counted as part of GDP. It's um, and in order to get regular statistics on this, you have to do time use surveys. And Devaki has been a pioneer at this work on trying to reveal um, the extent of unpaid work and who does it through surveys uh, uh, designed to, to reveal this. Now, there has been progress over this, and indeed, 
the, the new um, UK time use survey is about to be released in Oxford, I think, the uh, Micro Social Research Centre. Uh, um, they're going to they take charge of, of releasing this, but there is a time use survey for the UK and for, and, for, and for Scandinavian countries and for increasing range of countries in Asia and Latin America and and Africa, which makes visible this kind of unpaid work and the inequalities in the distribution of this, inequalities both in terms of boys and girls, men and women, uh, uh, girls and women do a lot more of it than men and boys most everywhere, but also in location, rural, urban, and also in terms of uh, social class. So you have a different access to look at inequality under, and it's an inequality that has a lot of implications for people's health, for instance. If you have to do vast amounts of unpaid work and you also have to do some paid work in order to earn some money, then the implications for your health, for your ability to participate politically and so it has knock-on effects to these other kinds of inequalities. The second R I talk about is reduce, which is eliminate some of this unpaid work. So either it's not done at all because you can turn on the switch and get electricity or turn on the tap and get water. So that needs investment in that kind of infrastructure or the provision of public services like care services for an early edu- early education services. So the work isn't eliminated, but it's no longer unpaid. It's done on a paid basis. And there, there are a lot of issues about exactly how you organise this. Do you just think about providing public money? Do you privatise it all and try and attract um, private sector enterprises to do it? Do you have some com- combination? You have private enterprises, but you provide public subsidies in various ways, or do you uh, try and uh, create a, a, a public service in which the care workers are... Uh, well-paid, um, uh, have uh, decent career trajectories and well-trained. I favour the latter, but uh, we see different approaches in, in different countries. And what we've got in the UK at the moment is certainly not the latter. It's an incredible uh, patchwork. And in fact, we've gone backwards in terms of those elements we did have of a, a more uh, integrated national standards, um, publicly provided care services have been eliminated. And the third R is for redistribution. And here we're talking about redistribution between women and girls and men and boys, I think. Uh, uh, some unpaid work will always remain, and we don't want to eliminate it at all because we both want time free from caring for other people, but also time free to care for other people. There's a value in that, both for the receiver and the giver of the care. But then the issue is a more equal distribution of that um, unpaid work. And there are uh, quite a lot of policy levers you can uh, use to try and change that distribution, but you also need the kind of transformative cultural changes of the kind that uh, Devaki mentioned, which is harder to organise when you haven't got everybody in an ashram with somebody who can say, right, you men must do this and you women can do that. But you do see some of these changes taking place, most notably in the Scandinavian countries, I think. So so feminist economics has brought, I think, that, that additional perspective on inequality of what and what kinds of... Uh, 
redistributions um, we need to see. Um, how am I doing for time? Um, well, you've had your ten minutes. Okay, well, let, me, <laughs> let me then just say that, because uh, feminist economics engages with uh, inequality in market-based work as well, there's a lot of work um, which Ashwini, I know, has been doing studies on this in India, looking at gender wage gaps and this issue of how much is discriminatory and how much is not, and how that intersects with other, um, with social class, for instance, or location. Um, and there's also an engagement with um, the kinds of inequality that are men, uh, uh, measured by things like the Gini coefficient or these ratios, the top 10% to the bottom 40% or 10%, both in terms of thinking about what is the gender composition of these, these top 1% wealth holders, who are they, uh, in terms of their, their, uh, their gender and in terms of their race as well. Um, uh, and also the, these diff- the poorest groups, are they disproportionately female? Are, 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 are people who are concentrated in these poorer groups disproportionately female? And also questions like, as more women have entered um, the labour market and got paid work, um, has this increased inequality between households or decreased it between households. And you can see it could increase inequality between households if it's mainly well-educated women from households that are already among the better off that are going into the labour market and getting well-paid jobs. But it could decrease it if you have um, more women from lower-income groups going into the labour market, provided that they get um, a, a decent wages. And so the, that's an empirical question, which, which way it goes. But you can have policies that try to make sure that women's increasing women's participation in the labour market reduces rather than increases um, inequality between households by having things like uh, uh, minimum wages, by having things like laws that permit and encourage uh, low-income women workers to organise and to bargain uh, for, for better returns, whether they're wage workers or self-employed workers. So I won't um, say um, uh, much about this issue of Piketty and gender, except to see it's... Anybody's read the 550 pages? <laughs> well done. Uh, I think it's had a big impact because of the way it presented inequality in ways that people could understand. None of these Palmer ratios and Gini coefficients, but what's been happening with the, the share of the, the rich, the top 10%, the top 1%, and in long historical perspective as well. Um, and um, it is, however, uh, an account that really has a very only cursory mentions of, uh, of gender or of race. And it pays really not much attention to how do people accumulate, accumulate the assets. Inheritance, it does talk a lot about inheritance, uh, which brought that back into, into the discussion, I think, among economists. But it doesn't talk about, really, about in any detail, plunder, exploitation, slavery, a few cursory mentions of slavery, acquisition of property through marriage, where married women have to give up their property, um, uh, monopoly power, centralisation and concentration of capital through competitive processes in the way that Marx described. 
So um, although in many ways it's very rich, in other ways it's very restrictive. And feminist economists now started to engage with this, both about what's the view of the labor market that's presented in this book, where Piketty abandons marginal productivity theory as an explanation for the very high salaries of the CEOs and the financial traders and brings in things like social social norms, elite interconnections, but still claims marginal productivity as an explanation for the uh, wages of the of the uh, the lower end of the market and has no sense of the labor market as a, a racialized, sexualized market in the way that Linda's research reveals. But also in the way that it really treats the whole process of social reproduction, the reproduction daily and intergenerationally of people as somewhere outside the process of capital accumulation. And it's not alone in this, because most heterodox economics does this. But I think feminist economists want to argue um, this is not an innocent omission, and it misses something important about the ways in which inequalities are developed and perpetuated, and that's what I'm working on at the moment. So results to present us. Well. <laughs> Thanks very much, Diane. So we go straight into that. Thank you. Um, gosh, this really is sandwich filling. <laughs> I feel I'm stood between two sort of much more, um, I'm going to say, um, hardcore feminist um, um, analysis of, 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 of inequality. Anyhow, um, some of what I was going to say about um, um, literature as a response to a way of addressing, um, a way of reimagining forms of inequality, I've um, anticipated or already said sort of informally um, yesterday, in particular, perhaps um, in. You know, opening up the, the final session. So I may dwell on that less than I had prepared to do and um, spend a little bit more time just on some observations um, that have bubbled up across um, across the last day or so <clears throat> of listening. Um, and the first is just to, to put on the table a worry about this term inequality. Um, you know, what does it mean to focus on that rather than on words like, say, difference, which was a, a word that um, I think Diane, uh, you know, very importantly brought forward yesterday? Discrimination, injustice, um, um, diversity, um, um, and. And then also, um, and the, I think this is subtends and is part of and involved in um, all aspects of inequality, whatever inequality it is that we're looking at, um, violence. Um, I think that you know, um, unequal social and economic uh, relations impact violently on some bodies and on some bodies more so than other bodies bodies of children, bodies of women um, the, the, the bodies of on black bodies um, and, and that is something that we may want to, to, to talk a bit more about I do worry in talking about so much about inequality this came up for me also in the previous session that we in some senses, simply sort of reconfirm 
the the the, sh the sharp differences that already exist that we're talking about. Um, and on the other hand, as I think Elfie was saying, you can't ignore these differences because to do so is to distort your analysis. So um, perhaps that's something we could we, we could talk a bit more about in you know in in, in the discussion that follows. Um, what does it mean to to recognize these forms of, of um, inequality and to do so under the heading of inequality rather than, say, discrimination or injustice, where we might then want to do something about those issues of, of discrimination and injustice. Um, I'm particularly um, motivated by, driven by, um, forms of gender and, and, and racial injustice um, and I'm sort of constantly thinking through my own discipline about ways of addressing those 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 forms of discrimination and um, in the sort of more formal prepared remarks that that I have here I'll just you know, touch touch briefly on that um, but uh, it's it's you know, using um, and I don't want to instrumentalize these things either but but thinking about culture as a way of reimagining um, in unjust social relations and, and then and, and, and in some way moving forward with um, with um, addressing redressing um, those those relations um, is, is very important to me and I was just in, in thinking ahead to the seminar I was just doing as kind of a rough um, analysis of my own of the pages of the the newspapers that I most look at um, from Monday to Tuesday to Wednesday and I noticed how page after page involved stories of violence um, against discrimination against women women's bodies there was this, there was just for example the story of the um, the Chelsea football club doctor and the, you know, the, the, the case she was bringing against Chelsea Football Club as a result of you know, um, the conflict uh, that she'd had with Jose Mourinho. There was the story of, of, um, of campus rape in, in America and, the, um, and the, the issue of whether the judge had given too lenient a sentence there. Um, there was a, a smaller story of a, of a young woman who had been uh, murdered by her boyfriend um, I, I'm not trying to suggest that um, there's, you know, there's, there's been an, you know, a sharp rise in these these situations. I'm, 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 I'm not a conspiracy theorist, and I don't have a sense of social media's, you know, um, as it were, uh, uh, exacerbating these these issues or um, focusing more attention on them. Although that that might be something to think about. But uh, I just, you know, it, I, under the heading of inequality and violence, I think it's just worth noting that um, gender inequality impacts in very violent and abusive ways on, um, on the bodies of, of, of women. So those were just by way of, of um, reflections um, and observations across the past few days. Uh, with in respect of or in response to this um, this this our overriding topic of, of inequality, um, but I really would like us to think about what what it means to foreground inequality above other 
about, about um, other ways of describing this problem and whether that foregrounds or privileges certain form, certain kinds of discipline, certain kinds of analysis over others. Um, so, on to, just very, I'm, and I'm going to summarise here, um, onto my more prepared remarks. Um, my, my work is on perceptions and representations as captured in literary writing that expose, that, that shed light on um, forms of inequality, to use, to use that word. Um, so, um, you know, my formation is 1980s, 1990s feminism and, um, and um, African literary criticism, Africanist, African-Americanist literary criticism. Um, what has been fr uh, front and centre of those um, forms of analysis, those um, disciplinary perspectives, is, is questions of voice, who speaks, um, the importance of the subjective voice, the local voice, um, the peripheral voice, um, the, you know, the, the, the question that um, Gertrude Spivak so you know, powerfully, if also in some ways frustratingly, in, in, in the sense of um, in some, sometimes in obfuscatory ways put on the table of can the subaltern speak, but I would say much more you know, the, is important is how the subaltern speaks. Um, whether literary writing forms of cultural production can capture the view, the tone, the perspective, the language, the idiom of be it the Dalit, the subaltern, the unemployed woman from the north, the child, uh, the less empowered. Um, narrative here is, is, is crucially important, I think, and this was um, the the point that I think is still valid in my somewhat uh, dated now uh, piece about terror that was um, that was in the readings. Um, narrative is important in so far as it gives temporality, structure, and an explicable shape—a shape that is explicable and um, um, and comprehensible across cultures to the formless, unremitting violence that accompanies all forms of inequality. And here I'm, I'm very persuaded by um, Zizek's reading of, um, of the violence of capital as subtending and informing all forms of, 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 um, of other violence and of unequal social relations. It's a very long sentence, so just to reiterate, I think narrative mm -hmm. is important. It gives structure and explicable shape to um, to experiences of violence, to experiences of, of inequality, and um, shapes that are that are um, comprehensible um, across across cultures. Um, I would just like to cite here. Um, the work of Chinua Achebe, which has been central to, certainly to my theoretical and literary formation, um, and in particular where Achebe, uh, from you know, the vantage point of his particular cultural, um, cultural perspective, um, gave um, an account of colonial history 
from the from from the vantage point of of, of those who had been colonized in order as 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 he said to understand when the rain began to beat us um, uh, a name that also came up yesterday as it were an inheritor of the Achebe mantle uh, Ben Okri also Chimamanda Adichie um, both in their different ways um, through through narrative give an account of a very visceral um, a, a vivid account of what it is to experience colonial racial and gender marginalization um, in uh, America Now, which was referred to yesterday, um, Adichie makes a, a very revealing observations, very much from a subjective point of view, but um, um, but, but 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 real and, and impactful for all that um, about what it is to be black in Nigeria, what it is to be black in America. The the central character there, for example. Um, um, observes that she wasn't black till she came to America. Um, she didn't perceive herself as black until she, until she, she um, experienced African America and experienced also the ways in which um, African um, origin people uh, were discriminated against um, or are discriminated against in the United States. She also, and in, in the same um, sort of process of thinking about discrimination, she talks about not experiencing self-hating until, until um, forming part of a minority in the African-American context. Um, and then, um, and uh, this is probably going to have to be my, 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 my final point, um, I'm interested not only in how um, literary and cultural forms register these forms of discrimination, difference and, and inequality, but also how they go about um, reimagining, um, revisioning, um, understanding on different terms. Um, not only how we might um, endure unequal, an unequal situation, but how we might actually re redress, go about changing that, that situation. Um, and my own work on how we might reimagine through literature draws to a great extent from um, the work of Raymond Williams um, and his understanding of how structures, including cultural structures, mold so social life. And I'd, I'd, I'd just like to, to I mean, it's, it's, very, it's very Raymond Williams, this quote. It's sort of completely, the, the language is completely unremarkable, unevocative, and kind of workmanlike. Nonetheless, I think there's, 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 there's something in here that we, can, that we can think about when we think about reimagining through, um, through cultural expression. And he suggests, he advocates, the study of culture as the study of relations between elements in a whole way of life finds ways of studying structure, in particular works and periods, that stay in touch with and illuminate artworks and forms, but also forms and relations of more general social life, that we might replace the formula of base and superstructure with the more active idea of a field of mutually if also unevenly determining forces. Okay. 
Um, so just to just to highlight then to replace that that formula of base and superstructure with the more active idea of a field of mutually, if also unevenly determining forces. Um, I'm also very um, influenced by and very indebted to Lefebvre's ideas of production of social space, the, the social and imaginative production of social space, um, in which you know, cultural production is absolutely central for understanding, but also um, addressing um, un- unequal social relations. And um, just two quick examples. Um, I promised I'd, I'd mention this yesterday. I'd just like to draw attention again, as Ashwini did yesterday, to the, the remarkable uh, Behind the Beautiful Forevers, um, as a as a not a novel but um, a, a, a non-fictional um, narrative account of um, and the Anawadi uh, slum beside the um, airport in in Mumbai, Bombay, um, which th- through really stark forms, very vivid forms of juxtaposition, gives us a profound sense of inequality. I would say a more visceral, a more hard-hitting understanding of inequality um, through those stark juxtapositions than, um, if you like, an economic analysis of you know, un- inequality in that same in that same um, slum might, might might give us. And she and and um, Catherine Boo, the author, does that in part through that the contrast between the the billboards advertising Italian floor tiles, you know, yeah. The beautiful forevers, beautiful forever. The floor tiles are beautiful forever, mm-hmm. and this slogan um, kind of masks, stands, in, um, uh, shuts the slum away from the observing eyes of the, you know, the international elite flying into into um, Mumbai Airport, and um, and also therefore you know, shuts away their their lives, their sufferings, um, and any sort of evidence of, of their inequality. Um, and then secondly, um, again, it's actually, it's, it's not a fiction. Um, the, the remarkable book, um, Dispatcher by Mark Gavissa, which is an account of his growing up in um, racially segregated Johannesburg, and the game that he used to play with an A to Z, um, thing in which he, as a somewhat lonely, imaginative child used to try to imagine getting from point A to point B in the city using the A to Z, but you know, realizing in due course that there was no way he could actually in, in reality play the game because of, because of racial segregation between different you know, parts of the city. And again, what is, it's, an, it's a different kind of very sort of viscerally realized um, vivid juxtaposition in, in um, that particular memoir where he's showing that these these divides, these social geographic divides, are kind of absolute, a bit like the billboards in the in, in the Catherine Boo account. So I've 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 gone on a very sort of long um, uh, kind of trajectory away from my opening remarks about actually questioning the term inequality itself to um, to a kind of a I would like to think a, a passionate um, um, advocacy of of cultural responses to forms of, of inequality and and ways of reimagining them. 
Thank you. Um, I've got a PowerPoint, which feels rather odd in this uh, gathering, but I thought I'd give you something to look at just before lunch. Um, and very interestingly, I find myself very nicely positioned between these two talks because I think I do a bit of both, what they both do. So what I'm going to do is tell you a little bit about my work um, talk about geography per se and why, oh, it'll come in a minute, what geographers do, the level at which we work and so forth, and then come back to a couple of examples about inequality. Um, it will come in a minute. And it's very interesting to sit and think, I think we're all sitting here listening to the words of the speakers and recognising certain theories, certain theoreticians and not others and having to have some things explained to us. And I'm a feminist, I, I work in similar areas to Diane, read some of the same theory, but I also read a lot of literature, I work on narrative, I use Raymond Williams and the firm. So here I, I am in the middle. So what I do, this will come eventually. Maybe, maybe you click on... Do I have to click on something? something? Uh, it doesn't seem to be here. There. Oh, at the it's bottom, at the bottom of the... Uh, no, there's nothing definitely. here. Oh. Yeah. Ah. Uh, go back one. That's a minute. Right, and uh, I don't want to go back one. Yep. And then we'll and then slide it over. No, I know how to do that. Oh, you. Oh, oh, no, you've gone. You don't want that. Take okay. it back. <laughs> uh, slide, set it slide show. From beginning. Oh, come here. It just shows you shouldn't do you this, want, isn't it? I tell you what, you don't From want the presenter view, do you? You don't want to oh, right, you, do. you do. Okay. <laughs> This is Microsoft 10, Word 10. It's a horrible package, I tell you. Don't, don't accept it when no. you get off it. You just go to... Lovely. Right. Is Thank that okay? You. Yeah, that's perfect. Okay. okay. So what I do, my own work, is on moments of change. I'm interested in periods of in the economy when you can see significant change. So I'm interested in the immediate post-war period, for example... I'm interested when the banking crisis, I've written a book about the banking crisis, and I'm interested in the impact of austerity now, uh, uh, the financial crisis and post-austerity. And I work on the connections between moments of change, gender, class and inequality. And I've been writing lately about transnational migration. So I'm interested in the um, impact of globalisation, transnational movement on the UK, uh, working in the post-colonial period. And by that very word, post-colonial, I was allowed to go and present in Ellicott's post-colonial theory seminar, which is very interesting. So I've written a book recently, which is about narrative and about voice. It's presenting the oral histories of women who came to Britain between 1945 and 2010 in their own words, in the extent that you can use people's own words when it's me who's interviewed them and me who's re-representing their life stories. I mean, there's some interesting questions raised about Catherine Boo's book, I think, about her own positionality and how she did that uh, kind of work. But this book is rather different from what I normally write in that it's got a very thin academic carapace around it. It's mainly narrative histories. And it's women talking about inequality and discrimination in the labour market. And I've theorised it in terms of feminist work on bodies in the labour market, which I'll talk about in a minute. Sorry, I've gone too far. 
um, and um, work on what usually is called the production of difference. And now I'm thinking quite carefully about the difference between using that terminology, the production of difference, and inequality. But I draw on the work of Burroway and Rodinger, Rodinger's wonderful book about whiteness in the labour market, and Rodinger about interpolation, which I'll talk about in a minute. So I'll come back to my own work in a minute and tell you how it fits into geography. And what I thought I might do is talk a little bit about geography as a discipline. It's somewhere in between the disciplines that we've heard um, today. It's not like economics. We're not interested in the ground, the general, large theories. But we're interested in the difference that place makes. Our very raison d'etre is about inequality and difference. And I want to claim that it's interdisciplinary in its aims. Um, I'm not sure I can, um, and that's something I'd really like to end up talking about today, what we actually mean about interdisciplinarity. But geography is sort of middle level in its theoretical focus. It wants to talk about difference, um, although, of course, we're trapped, like all social scientists, in the structure agency debate and where our explanation is. And people argue that it's a synthetic rather than a substantive discipline in the sense that we, we don't have an object other than place. So sociology looks at social relations, the economics at the economy and so forth. But geography is more substantive, uh, sorry, synthetic than that. And of course it used to be about this old argument, man's role in changing the face of the earth. I mean that's what we're interested in and that's where the links with Alfie uh, arise, for example. Geographers are interested in the environment. But I'm a human geographer, so I don't really work on physical issues. And the three key concepts that link geography together, and of course we're a very uncertain group of people. Geographers are always desperate to justify what geographers do and what geography is about because we have a sort of bad reputation. It's the kind of thing people do. You know, boys who play rugby come to do geography at Oxford. Um, so it, it's, its image is, is rather odd. So we like to argue that we have a set of key concepts that links the discipline together, and they are space, place, and scale. We're interested in why things are distributed as they are across the globe, which, of course, many of the disciplines are, so we're inter interested in international trade, migration, etc. But we're also interested in the construction of difference or particularity, why those distributions result in difference between places. Why is Manchester different from Newcastle? Why is there a different structure of feeling in those two places? And then, of course, we're interested in scale. Geographers work at different scales from the local. We might talk about the body as having a geography. That's Adrian Rich's wonderful poetry, talking about the geography closest in. Localities, regions, states, the international. And the key argument of, of geographers is that place matters, that, that where things happen has effects. So it's not that space is just a container or you can draw a, a line around pla places, but the social and spatial are mutually constituted and relational. Places are different and that difference matters. So how global processes work out in different places depends on the place itself. So place it has an effect. And there's a wonderful book by a well-known geographer who sadly died recently called Geography Matters. So that's what we claim. 
Our empirical focus varies, actors, people, classes, etc., places, distributions and networks. And perhaps I should have said something about method. I think increasingly in human geography, not everybody, but many people work with qualitative <coughs> methods. Our argument is we're interested in processes, not patterns. Geographers used to be um, criticised for only being able to talk about patterns. Some of my colleagues do work on patterns, and of course patterns do tell you things, uh, but we're interested in processes, what people think in different places, why the social relations in those places matter. And we're, we're pragmatic, empirical, and we're interested in policy. So different scales, and I thought I'd just talk a little bit about the kind of work that geographers do at different scales. So at the very local level, um, there's a great deal of work on intra-urban inequality, which, of course, we haven't talked about very much yet in this seminar. Anthony Heath is talking about measures of inequality, reliance on the Gini coefficient. Geographers have measures too, so we have the index of dissimilarity, which allows you to tell, say something about residential segregation. And it's not like the Gini coefficient, but it's a measure of how many people would have to move to have a totally evenly spatial distribution of people. Um, and the argument is that the spatial distribution in cities has an impact so that the real income of people in a city is more than the income from employment. Real income also um, uh, includes all those distributional effects that come from location. And location, of course, includes housing, education, etc., which are spatially immobile. If I've got a house in a nice area, you can't have it as well. So people's real income is either increased or decreased by their location in a city. Um, there's also negative effects, what economists call negative externalities, and we talked a little bit, Lloyd was talking about um, the effect of pollution, um, environmental disasters and so forth, how they tend to um, affect the poor more, the polluted areas and cities are the inner areas often and so forth. So one's real income, a household's real income, uh, depends on their very location in a city. But the local, if you work at the local level, that doesn't mean you're only looking at local or small-scale social processes because the local is also global. And to go back to Doreen Massey, who wrote a very nice piece called uh, The Global... The Glo I can't remember what it's called. The, the Local is Also Global. And she took the example of Kilburn, showing how a very small area in Britain was constructed through spatial flows across multiple scales. And it, um, migration's obviously one. Then there's a huge amount of work, especially at the moment, about regional inequality, both within and between nations. And in the UK, uh, the work is predominantly on the growing north-south divide. Uh, in Italy, um, it's the other way around, of course. The north in Britain um, is, uh, has a whole series of disadvantages that the south doesn't. And I have um, a very nice and new colleague in geography called Danny Dorling who does a lot of mapping of inequalities uh, at the regional scale within uh, Britain. Um, 
And I'll come back to the North Society of in a minute. And then, of course, geographers work at the global level. Here we have connections with people who work on development and so forth, looking at the North and the South on the global scale, looking at the effects of the changing division of labour, the old international division of labour based on trade of products and so forth, on the new international division of labour, what the impact has been in the UK of the movement of industry to other parts of the world. A good example at the moment is Teesside, the closure of steel industry in Teesside apparently because of Chinese imports, but if you actually look at the figures, Chinese imports of steel into Britain are not as huge as the government uh, often says. And a whole series of questions about development, which I'm not going to talk about today because that's not the scale that I work on. So just to prove I am a proper geographer, um, here's a couple of maps. You know, where is the north-south divide? Not only do we have a question about what is inequality, but what are the spatial dimensions of inequality. So Anthony talked this morning about life expectancy, so we've got an example there, and income and so forth. And you know, you generally know the patterns. But don't forget, in the 19th century, this map would have looked very different. Um, the banking industry wasn't only concentrated in London, Newcastle was a very affluent si uh, city and so forth. And then I rather like this one. I, I fished it off the web and it was called um, the junk food index. But actually, it's not junk food at all, is it? It's the annual spend on fruit and veg by region. And just showing some of the astonishing divides. Um, Scotland, of course, falls into all those stereotypes. They eat fried Mars bars. Um, but of course, don't forget, there's local inequalities within those regional inequalities. We talked yesterday about representation, about literature. The north-south divide in the UK is exacerbated by all forms of representation. So we have Lowry, my hometown of Manchester, and Constable in uh, the south-east. Uh, and, and we talked yesterday about film and so forth. Now, deindustrialization has altered patterns of inequality in the UK in all kinds of different ways, which um, are important in thinking about the intersection between class, race and ethnicity. And although, well, Diane began to talk about this, about thinking about inequalities between women as well as between men and women. So, as you know, deindustrialization has not only had an effect on the regions of the UK, the what we call the peripheral regions from our view from London and Oxford, but it has had enormous effect on the gender division of labour as many more women are drawn into the labour market, and some men have been excluded. But what has happened has been this, a complete transformation in the kind of work that people do. 1955, 55% of everybody was working in the manufacturing industry. Nowadays, 75% of everybody works in the service sector in the UK. So why this matters is, is it's changed the geography of the UK as well as the intersection between class, race and gender. That old spatial division of labour in which we had a very obvious regionally specific economy in this country of parts of the country dominated by single industries led to a particular kind of culture that Williams captures in his term Structures of Feeling. So uh, Doreen and I wrote a paper together many years ago, 1984, um, A Woman's Place, which looked at the connections between male-dominated industry, women's work of social reproduction in the home, and the development of a particular culture in a region. 
and we compared four different regions in the UK. But think of the growth of single industry towns and cities and what effect it has on the culture, the politics and so forth, the Durham Gala, Red Clyde side, etc., etc. Compare that to Lancashire, the region I come from. My grandmother worked in the cotton industry. Women went out to work. The working class suffragette movement was very important in the northeast and so forth. The transformation of the economy has not only changed gender divisions of labour and the nature of work, it's changed the geography of the country too. There's much less regional variation now in, um, in labour market participation. The rates are much more similar across the country. And what has happened, of course, is new types of work into which men and women are drawn in differentially and women from different um, ethnic backgrounds. And what we've seen which Diane talked about, is new class divisions between women. As educated women have a labour market participation pattern now that is similar to male participation, women used to have a U-shaped labour market participation pattern as they left the labour market when they had children. Educated women now have a flat pattern, very similar to men's, just about 8% below men in terms of participation. And working class women do the domestic labour that we used to do in the homes, commodified in various ways, either through the state, as Diane was talking about, or through purchase. And most middle-class women purchase um, uh, childcare and other forms of domestic labour. So we're getting new class divisions between men, between women, <coughs> excuse me, and I would argue between men as well, and a new pattern in which many working-class men and women do the similar type of work and it's bottom end labour and it's interactive labour it's the kind of labour where you're providing a service for somebody where the other person is there and increasingly it's the kind of work in which bodies matter whether you're white whether you're middle class whether you're a person of colour whether you're racialized or not and so we need a different version of understanding of equality and inequality And here I draw on the work of uh, Iris Marion Young, who talks about the five faces of oppression. Um, It's not just class, it's to do with embodiment as well. And so um, I've taken some of these ideas, um, also drawing um, on uh, the work of Judith Butler about bodies, Patricia Hill Collins about racialized discrimination, to look at the position of migrant women who come into the UK, particularly looking at the kind of caring labour they do in the economy. And the caring work is where distant strangers are now doing the intimate body labour in in the home and in other spaces. And this has produced racialised and gendered labour markets in which people with different social characteristics skin colour, nationality, etc., are drawn into the labour market <coughs> excuse me, in particular kinds of ways. They're constructed through stereotypical attitudes of employers, co-workers, and increasingly the consumers of services who now have a view of what kind of bodies are suitable to do what kind of work. And I've looked at this through interviewing, for example, Caribbean women who came to Britain in the 50s and what happened to them, patterns of institutional racism in the NHS in which black bodies were constructed as inferior to white bodies through all kinds of ways, through being 
um, pushed onto a training track in which they couldn't get promotion through attitudes of patients and so forth. I've looked at South Asian women who came to Britain in the 60s and 70s and increasingly looked at the diverse range of um, women who come to Britain now, looking at the connection between class, ethnicity and gender in the labour market, showing how patterns of discrimination work out um, and mean that there's a hierarchy of um, positionality in the labour market in which certain people are constructed as only suitable for bottom-end jobs, which, of course, affects their income. So the the value of people in the labour market is constructed. People are are not unmarked bodies, um, but the labour market operates through racialised, sexualised ways of discrimination. Um, So that's the kind of work I do. Thank you. Um, We've got some time for discussion. I thought I would start by asking our graduate commentators whether they have any uh, comments or questions. What did you say you were asking? Any of us to speak? Or did you no, speak? no. Graduate commentators. Give me on what Lynn was talking about, about um, cert- what certain jobs, uh, certain bodies can be attributed to certain jobs. Um, that's quite interesting because coming from a cultural, literary perspective um, of, uh, of French, fr- uh, French contemporary literature. Um, so recently, there's this program on a French TV channel, which is about which on which are invited various uh, contemporary Francophone writers. And for this one, there were two writers from the French Caribbean, so one from Haiti and one from Martinique, and a writer from Algeria. And uh, one of them had written a book about um, the Harlem Renaissance, so this uh, black writers movement in the States at the beginning of the 20th century. And um, they were talking about how uh, back then, the writers of the Harlem Renaissance, when they met black writers from France, said, well, there are no black writers in France. And um, the presenter of the show brought up this this comment. I know. uh, I think it's window washing. (laughs) (laughs) So she brought up this comment and said, well, we can say the same today. Where are the black writers in France today? And uh, which was already quite a, a very... Like bold assumptions because there is there's been a huge tradition made in French Caribbean of black writing. But anyway, um, so one of the writers um, from Martinique said, "Well, we're, he didn't deny the assumption. He said, well, no, because first we had to be uh, we, we, there's a there's a learning curve. So before we could become writers, we had to be footballers or nurses and mm-hmm. things like that. So um, it just made me realise how certain there really is this idea." That's been a, a lot like internalised by people who do like who are discriminated against. Of there are certain jobs I can do, and I can't be like for example I can't be a writer or a cultural figure. Uh, I have to be a footballer first. But even though this is absolutely not true, so there's also this idea of representation of who can do what, and so it just made me think of that. Like, 
Yes. I mean, when you think of all the jo- jobs that women do in Britain, I mean, people talk about the five Cs, don't they? Catering, caring, cleaning, etc. And this whole notion that we, you know, we're naturally caring and so forth. So women have, don't have skills, they have talents, and, uh, you know, because they're natural, they can be underpaid. There's a wonderful feminist cartoon that says, you know, if women have nimble fingers, because the other argument that it's a famous paper by Diane, if you don't mind me saying, uh, about nimble fingers, you know, women have nimble fingers so they can do all these jobs in the third world of, uh, you know, assembling things. So the cartoon was an open head and women, you know, if women have got such nimble fingers, why aren't we brain surgeons? But, you know, that's constructed as rational, the mind and so forth. Women, the body, men of the mind, you know. But, yeah, but very interesting, and it works out through literature too. Can I make a comment for, uh, for Diane, which is when when you're looking for an economic indicator, well, when I'm looking for economic indicators of people who are trying to think about inequality in a public setting, how incredibly difficult it is often to find data sets or any, any information that's publicly accessible, government, you know, that, that, that might be released by the government or, or whoever, that, um, that involves the gender division of labour, and it actually makes writing about it really tough if you, if you don't know. And I just wondered if, if there are very clear reasons why that could be. Labour force surveys usually uh, have uh, data disaggregated by, mm. uh, by sex and by other characteristics as well. And so data on who's doing what kind of jobs and what kind of wages are they getting, mm. that's most easily available from these big data. There's very few countries have what you was, uh, Ash, Ashwini was, was telling us is now available in India, which is um, individual income data. Usually, It's the beginning. So it's, yes. Because income has many components. Yes. Is that they're trying to get at individuals. Yes. So it's complicated. It's, it's starting. Yeah. So usually, say for the, the countries like the UK, New Zealand, whatever, it, it, it will be um, uh, the... the uh, Data on on uh, that's most used for things like inequality will be household level mm-hmm. data, so you can't look within households to see who owns what, who gets what, what inequalities there might be within households. Um, time use data is only sporadically available, which I'm a I'm a fan of time use data because it gives you a lot more detail about by age, by uh, by uh, sex, by by race. Uh, what can, allows for multiple activities at the same time and who are you doing the activities with and so forth and throws light on. Actually, a lot of paid work that labour force surveys typically leave out uh, because it's either home-based or it's more, quote, informal, not captured by labour force surveys. But, but it's a, a kind of thing that um, people have been pressing for now for 30 years for better data on, on uh, which reveals the gender divisions in not only paid work but unpaid work, income, wealth and so forth. We're starting to see some improvements but um, there's still ways to go with him. Sorry, I was going to say there are some lovely figures I think that came out last year that looked at unwaged work and then gave it a value um, according to the average and then added it to GDP and it doubled GDP techniques, I didn't have time to mention them I got them in my notes what's created, calling what's called a, ca- a satellite account yeah. that can sit alongside the GDP that says if this work had to be paid for all of this work that's done unpaid 
um, what would we have to pay for it? And then, then you have strategies about do you pay at the minimum wage? You say it's unskilled, it's the minimum wage. Do you say, well, actually, no, it's a kind of... It's, it's, it's a child psychologist, it's a, it's a chef, it's a... In other words, you choose some more skilled wages uh, to use for it. And, of course, depending which you do, you get a bigger figure. But even using uh, unskilled wages, it becomes a very um, substantial proportion of GDP. So varies from country to country and which method you use, but it could well be between 30 and 40%. But all I'm trying to sort of mm. say, there's, I actually found it quite tough to gender my work. Mm. You know, looking for the data, I simply just couldn't bring in the elements that were real. I'm sure that there must be work on it, but it just wasn't easily accessible to me or... Maybe, it wasn't Maybe we can talk some more about <laughs> at lunchtime about the kind of work that you're doing and what strategies there might be. Yeah, yeah. I mean, sometimes there's no substitute for field work, actually, no. for the kind of thing no. that uh, that uh, Linda does, and the kind of thing that a lot of sociologists and anthropologists do, where you actually go out and, uh, and talk to people and 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 um, and you capture in their stories, if you like, the gender dimensions. And of course, there's a lot of a lot of um, tension among economists about this, who tend to dismiss this as anecdotal evidence. Oh, absolutely. It's not rigorous. I'm often having debates <laughs> with what counts as rigour varies across the disciplines, and is it very rigorous to take to download your big data set from some computer without any understanding of how do, was this data put together and how valid is it? But sometimes, you know, there, if there's no, you have to have qualitative research strategies, but then you've always got the challenge, how typical people that you've interacted with, the stories that you've got, how typical are they? Are these outliers or are they, do they represent the experience of a lot of people? But I would argue you don't always want to aim for representativeness. I mean, you don't have to go for typicality necessarily. I agree, I agree, yeah. I agree, I agree. Yeah. Because, for instance, if you want to say, taking up the issue that Elika raised about violence, if you mm. want to say violence is an important issue, you know, you just have to collect some examples of violence and the way it impacts on economic life to make the point without saying everybody's subject to this or how many people are subject to this. Yeah, um, just a quick response, not really a question to Alika's um, note about what, um, you know, um, I mean, we've also been talking about this, what um, literature or cultural products can do in general. And I think one of the first things that I like to think about literature is how it, it enables various forms of effective um, mobilizations. I mean, um, emotion is one of the really first sort of things that we experience when we see, you know, or confront these spectacles of inequality, spectacles of suffering. And I think um, what literature uh, or, or cultural uh, productions, cultural forms um, do or can can do in general is really to 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 summon us as you know emotional but also moral subjects, um, which I think is really important. It's really key um, to to um, later responses to this you know um, to to, to this um, you know problems or issues of, of injustice or inequality. And I think because emotion really um, is one of the primary forms in which we, we experience and I think it's important that later on when we translate these emotions into, you know, actions, I think that's what cultural forms do. Yeah. 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 Ye
quite a lot. Mm. Yeah, I just had a question from Melinda. I wondered if you had looked at sort of perceptions of professionality. So I think, yeah, recently there's been a kind of sort of internet outrage about the fact that a lot of people who have uh, Afro hair is told that it's unprofessional, so that it's actually not a part of a kind of off, like suitable in an office environment or maybe in a school uniform or something like that. And I just wondered if you kind of looked at, yeah, sort of perceptions of professionality, sort of how power looks like or should, how sort of people imagine power to look like and, and sort of where some of those perceptions come from. Is this sort of, is those things culturally coded? Is it sort of simply sort of racial prejudice? Is it kind of just kind of uh, symbolic associations? Like, just if you like, where where those those if you looked at sort of the origin of some of those perceptions? I've looked at examples rather mm. than origins to mm. some extent. So, looking at how I interviewed a hundred women um, who came to Britain over this period working in different jobs, and they would quite often talk about what was expected in the labour market, whether they fitted those expectations and so forth. So a lot of women talked about whether they had to wear uniforms or not, how their hair had to be, their shoes and so forth. I interviewed women, for example, who worked in hotels, who were doing room cleaning and who were never seen by the uh, occupants of the hotel room and yet had to have a particular performance. Uh, I interviewed women who talked about having to take jewellery out or, you know, have haircuts and so forth. Um, I talked to some extent to people about what they thought about these stereotypes, and lots of the stereotypes are to do with uh, national associations. So there's an argument, for example, um, by senior nurses that all Filipino nurses are reliable, caring, but not ambitious, you know, things like that. Um, so all those terrible national stereotypes. I think we talked yesterday about young black men, you know, being bouncers or security guards and so forth, etc. Um, but I haven't looked, done much work on origins other than general reading. Okay, should we throw the discussion? Did you want to come back on that? Did you want to come back on that? No. Uh, well, um, well I, mine was, was, was kind of looking to that, and that is this idea that um, we speak about inequality in economic terms or in divisions in the labour market, but something like this, something like a discrimination based on appearance or um, based on certain styles of dress, seem, it seems to come from a kind of more political type of discrimination, a more political type of inequality that then manifests in a kind of economic or labour division way. And I, and I keep wondering, it's, it's maybe a little bit of a chicken and egg question, but which comes first? Is it, fa is it Does the political inequality engender economic inequality, or does economic inequality engender political inequality? How do they relate, and how, which, where do you start to address how Well, they're mutually constituted, I think. I don't think one comes first or the other, you know. Um, I mean, class is always embodied and seen through the body, and is racialized and gendered. Um, I don't know if anybody knows Alice Kessler Harris's work. She's a wonderful US historian and she's written a collection called Gender and History in which she says sometimes people say I'm a labor historian but other people say I work on gender and actually I do both you know and bodies are never 
neutral or, you know, we're all embodied, we've got those characteristics. So I find feminist work on intersectionality the most appropriate theoretical perspective to address these questions. I don't know if you'd agree, Dan, because it's such a I do think they're mutually... constitute one another Um, you know to get your assets in the first place very often you need some coercive power Um, and when you look at historically at the the accumulations um, that you see represented today quite a lot have their roots in some kind of coercive power that may go back centuries if you look at uh, in terms of for instance accumulation of land um, um, uh, uh, but then there's the issue of you know what are the forces that might weaken. So yes, you get when you get the kind of economic changes Linda was talking about, you get weakenings of some kinds of political and coercive power by other groups that get political and coercive power. I mean the decline of the landed gentry, the rise of the manufacturing bourgeoisie, for instance, the the rise of imperialism, the the decolonization, the rise of new, more informal uh, forms of international power. So I think you get those changes within um, within uh, powerful and elite groups as new ones arise. But I think there's a particular concern today, which is in a way why lots of economists who might not have thought about inequality all that much before are now very concerned why you have institutions like the IMF and the OECD, as well as ones like the Human Development Report, which you'd expect to be concerned about inequality, producing reports on inequality, because they're a bit concerned that this very um, this, uh, concentration of wealth in the hands of the 1% really reinforces the political power of these groups. The work that Oxfam, I think, has done has brought this out very powerfully um, so that it means they block changes that might uh, redistribute towards groups with less and therefore they kind of, how do we get out of this sort of situation when the two things become mutually reinforcing? But usually, you know, you look at a fortune... It's very hard. You know, I think my default hypothesis, you look at a fortune, there's been coercive power there at some point in the accumulation, if not in this generation, in some previous generation. This sort of follows on your question, and it goes back to Alika's comment about term inequality in particular. One of the most intriguing things to me was reading that for economists, inequality is not necessarily a bad thing. I mean, I knew that at some level, but just being sort of having it explicitly stated that not all economists believe inequality is a bad thing, that it can actually drive productivity, et cetera, et cetera. There's something about using the term inequality in this context that assumes a normative political and moral stance that across the disciplines is not necessarily assumed. And so I took Elika to try to be pushing us toward asking the question, great, you know, we came here because it's the title of the conference, but in a, in a way, one of the questions to ask is, is the normative political assumption or moral assumption in this context about what would constitute some version of equality? Because we, I mean, we can't quite say the point is not to describe the world, the point is to change it. But if there is something like that that seems to be part of this conversation, that term inequality pushes us toward, and that you're asking us to think about, I think, that how much of this is about a descriptive activity and how much of it is it about 
um, both identifying and rearticulating a normative moral and political position that we can then work from in our various different fields. We, that's what yeah, I yeah and, and I wondered if it wasn't related to what you were saying, Linda, about patterns as against processes. I, I, mean, I think exactly. for some analysts, um, inequality is a pattern that is sort of taken as unavoidable. It's just, it, is, it, is, it is part of what is being described. Uh, and then there are others who see inequality as a kind of starting position in a process of change, which will lead to less inequality. Um, and, I, and I'm, I'm very intrigued as to you know what what people think about that around the room. Whether we're talking about states, fixed states, or whether we're talking about processes and amelioration or or radical change. I mean, to some extent, maybe we should go back to the um, philosophers. You know, because I mean, I know I read Diane's paper and she talked about rules, and I think you've mentioned rules in a joke here too. Yes, was your question on this? Well, yeah, I mean, it's just um, kind of responding to that. Is your is your question on this? Okay, you can go first. No, I thought Elke's presentation was, to my perception, like a bombshell because we moved away from what we've been engaged in the last two days, which is politics and economics, sociology. But to bring literature and culture and the kind of preoccupations that writers are having on not only inequality, but as she put it, injustice, I thought that was such an important contribution to what we're discussing, moving us a little away from measures and ideas of injustice. And I thought that uh, bringing that in, I just put down two points which I thought we should really and want to ask her also. that. Uh, in thinking about culture and looking at injustice with literature, you came up with the idea that violence against women has been one of the things that has emerged as one of the issues in which we should be concerned. And I thought that you might like to tell us a little more on how you think that this preoccupation we've had at looking at inequality from the economics and politics point of view, you can, how it, it intersects with all that we've been saying in terms of economic measures, because the measures that you are using are quite different mm. from the measures we have. And I, I felt that pausing a little on that mm. would be very valuable for us in terms of moving a little away from what is called the political ladder, the economic ladder. Brilliant. And I couldn't but have to stop for a minute to say, stop, there's something here, difference. And you also put difference much more central than inequality in your discourse. And that also, I think, has come out again and again, which needs to be brought up by us in understanding the socioeconomic aspects of inequality. Would you like to respond to that? I mean, I, I, don't, I, I was um, concerned to, um, to, for us all to, to think about how inequality impacts on bodies. I mean, I think Linda's work is also about this. Have the, um, all forms of inequality have embodied form, and they're, they're not merely, as a word, captured or reflected in, in, in numbers. Um, I don't have figures, measures, of whether there's um, more um, violence against women's bodies now than there was, say, I don't know, 100 years ago. Um, 
or whether there's just more attention to it or more more visibility of this kind of violence. I'm, I'm, I, I don't know, but I, I just did want us to observe that inequality impacts violently on the bodies of the less empowered, and not only women. Yeah. I think I mean, children are, you know, are um, a, 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 an under-recognized demographic often bear the, the brunt of, of violent, unequal social and economic relations. And working class men. And working class men. In war. Yeah. Oh, so, I, I mean, just um, thinking about, um, you know, for, for economists, inequality isn't necessarily a bad thing. I mean, I, I think that's true for, um, for philosophers who thought about inequality. I think there's very few people who would um, subscribe to the view that inequality um, was always kind of normatively um, objectionable, uh, or, the, or, the, or all instances of, of inequality were um, were instances also of, of injustice, or um, or the you know if we thought about what a kind of justifiable um, set of uh, social or political institutions might be, that the we would be imagining one that somehow got rid of all, all inequality. So I guess we we've, we've kind of flirted a couple of times with a view whereby kind of inequality is always the bad thing, and difference is mm. is the kind of normatively unmarked. Um, and that might be a little bit too that we might be making it too easy on ourselves there in the um, uh, clear uh, the fact that we describe let's say you know, some material um, difference in how, how people are placed as an inequality I don't think carries with it the thought that it's there by kind of normatively objectionable you know there's, there's always kind of more more to be uh, more to be said after that I mean so if somebody invites me to say something about rules, I'll, I'll say something about rules. But on on, on Rawls's view, you know, the, the, um, although Rawls gets misread all over the place, but um, I mean, on Rawls's view, inequalities that are to the benefit of the the least well off, um, you know, could be we could imagine those being being justified um, to everyone, right? In that no one no one's made worse off by them. Um, and there's clearly a kind of there's clearly a kind of um, plausibility to that thought, right? That um, you know, if, if you're kind of if you're offered a gain um, that you couldn't get, but for someone else also having uh, a gain that might be larger than yours, well, it seems kind of churlish to kind of uh, to turn that down. One might think now. That might be true about kind of certain kinds of material inequalities, but it might not be true about certain kinds of political equalities or equalities of like recognition or status or, or esteem. So, um, I mean, it, it might be the, you know, a kind of an idea of equal standing or kind of equal recognition might be one where actually we think deviations from equality are always bad, um, but it would be it would be a very strange view that thought that all all instances of material inequality were also kind of always normatively um, uh, problematic. I think that's right. I do think, though, that I mean, people like Nancy Fraser have made the argument for parity of participation as something that addresses that issue without necessarily resolving it. I think the main thing I was trying to get at is simply that inequality is the shared term 
without shared assumptions across the conversation. And that's, for me, that's one of the interesting things about this context is that it's become such a kind of um, rich term over the course of a very few hours in a way that previously we might have each had a kind of discipline or positionally based uh, sense of it, but that we had a we might think of ourselves as politically affiliated people at some level, or maybe we don't. But in the in this context, it starts pushing very hard on that notion of what counts as equality and what we can do to contribute toward it. Um, and I think that you're right. The philosophical there are philosophical claims that have been made by Rawls and others that it's not necessarily certain kinds of inequality are not necessarily always bad or normatively undesirable. I think the question is, I was trying to push us toward thinking about what do we, from our disciplines, from our sort of individual positions, think inequality means and what equality might look like in a kind of um, strong way. So we have um, pretty much had our 90 minutes in the sandwiches here. <laughs> but terrible. Yeah. Well, just a quick comment on Erica's opening question, which is, apart from the terms that you invite us to think about, there's a, there's a normative point, but there's also an agency point. Um, inequality itself need not necessarily be brought about by someone. Discrimination will be. Um, there's a discriminator when we talk of discrimination. There isn't necessarily an inequalizer when we talk of inequality. So that was quite a helpful question to, to think But about. there's not always an intentional discriminator. Yeah, and I'll come to that. So. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. But that thing about this woman moving from Africa to US, and there she suddenly finds that her color is matter. That's a kind of example which I thought is such an important one in your geographical mapping. Yes. So yes. we've got very new dimensions to what you normally look at as economic inequality. And economists tend to distinguish between extreme and rising inequality. I mean, the reason why you've got this plethora now of reports by international bodies and the concern by economists who aren't particularly heterodox or radical is because there's a perception we've got rising inequality, we've got extreme inequality compared with what prevailed, you know, maybe a couple of two or three decades ago. And so... Uh, you, you, that, so it does call into question those benchmarks. Okay, you know how much is rising? We can argue about how much is extreme, how much is acceptable. In a way, that's what we um, when I uh, worked with James Hines and Radhika Balakrishnan and two other economists, trying to think about well, what kind of benchmark would there be? We were trying to think of well, would a human rights framework give us some benchmarks to think about how much inequality is too much inequality? So we came, we're experimenting with the idea, well, it's too much inequality if it prevents the realisation of human rights on an equal basis, with a particular focus on the political power that comes from inequalities in wealth in particular, that blocks, therefore, uh, changes that would uh, move us forward towards more real fuller realisation of human rights on an equal basis. But I think discrimination, economists have always, of whatever persuasion, discrimination is a bad thing. They just don't believe, economists like Gary Becker just don't believe that discrimination is more than a temporary phenomenon because capitalists will soon find out it's not <laughs> profitable to discriminate and then they will stop discriminating. So I think uh, normatively discrimination is seen as a bad thing whereas inequality might not be at all. But um, it's a bad thing that the market will eliminate if you just let the market operate properly.
Uh, I think there's also a very different political discourse now, and I think it's post the financial crisis. I think people now think it is completely unfair that people are getting millions in bonuses. I think those figures that people give about CEOs now earn 530 times the basic uh, average income. And, you know, 30 years ago it used to be 20. Don't quote me on those figures. Mm -hmm. But the huge inequalities now, I think... I think there's a very different general yes. discourse, you know. Sorry, I just wanted to slip in the last two comments because I'm, um, I'm going to be able to stay for the afternoon and I'm, I'm very sorry for that, but an absolute tremendous opportunity. Uh, it was just a reflection on, uh, I asked this question yesterday a bit, but, you know, what the humanities could offer, and, and it's, it, to me, what uh, Devaki's reflection on what uh, Elga said kind of ties it all together, and as well your comment about affective mobilisation. Because um, it seemed that when I was asking you, Andrew, about, um, you know, is there another way but the instrumentalised way, it seemed that even though we can capture and metricise and measure as much as we can the damage inequality does to us, it seems that that doesn't escape a kind of, I don't really know what interpolation is, but some kind of addressing uh, of us by a social system as is kind of um, as only mattering in, in a way that's measured like that, or as only mattering with a view to economic growth, or with a view to happiness or well-being, as opposed to how literature addresses us, which is as more kind of subjects, or as kind of you know using narrative mode versus a systemic mode of thinking. And it's in addressing as subjects and kind of using emotion that we can reimagine and think about new forms in the way that you were talking about transformative, as opposed to just kind of these um, improvements. And it seemed that maybe that's why Ben Ockley was saying it was so important for the politician, because the politician is a visionary in a way. He needs to address people in these ways that can't quite be captured by the metrics. So when, Martin, you were talking about you know, self-respect and dignity, they seem to be these concepts that can't easily be measured, um, and that, 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 that literature and humanities and cultural forms will always make sure that that's there. I mean, that's why we do quality research. That's why the subjective is so important, so that it can't... Because I think even my kind of well-meaning research will still not enable us to escape those ways of being addressed when perhaps we can be addressed alternative ways that only literature can offer. So that's kind of one big thing that I'm taking from this. And just, to say just a footnote. I mean, literature can also be healing. I mean, the Dalit mm-hmm. literature is now, well, the Dalit's a way of not really articulating, but also healing. And I think that's one point that we're always talking of what happens, but we are not talking enough about what to do about it. And the doing about it, I think, how much the solidarity in India after the Dalit uh, uprising has been due to writers coming together in, you know, like, as a kind of almost like earlier class wars. It's a brilliant uh, space which we should really note when we talk about this. I'm so glad you did that. Good, thank you. So we reconvene, I think, at 2.30. Can we just thank our three speakers?